some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Ethel Rosenberg looked nothing like the other inmates in New York's infamous Sing Sing Correctional Facility. Besides being a woman, when the vast majority of prisoners were men, Ethel was petite, just four foot eleven, and a bit matronly. She had thin lips that often seemed pursed in photographs, a wide round face, and sad eyes. Normally, her curly brown hair was chin length and pinned up with barrettes to keep it from falling in her face, but on this day, that wasn't necessary. That's because prison officials had shorn her hair short for the evening event. Ethel, wearing a shapeless green dress and rubber slippers, was walked down a prison corridor and led into a hot room that smelled of bleach and death. Reminders that her husband Julius had been there just minutes earlier. Ethel kissed prison matron Helen Evans goodbye, then took a seat in the chair that awaited her. After the prescribed three charges, one at three seconds, then two more at 57 seconds each, a doctor stepped forward and placed a stethoscope to Ethel's heart to confirm she was dead. But instead of silence, he heard a weak thumping. Two more charges surged through Ethel's body, and this time when he checked, the doctor heard no thumping. At 7.16 p.m. on June 19, 1953, Dr. H.W. Kipp pronounced Ethel dead. The case that led to the executions of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg was dubbed the crime of the century by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, sparked protests nationwide, and made headlines throughout the world. But while the Rosenberg story ended with their deaths in 1953, the intrigue surrounding their roles as Russian spies lives on to this day. Whether this crime of the century led to anyone's death, other than the Rosenbergs, of course, is up for debate. Some dismiss the espionage case against them as overzealous and heavy-handed, especially because what they were accused of wasn't helping an enemy of the United States, and they helped an ally. But others, including the judge who sent the couple to the electric chair, said that what the Rosenbergs did helped lead to the Korean War and therefore the deaths of 5 million people, including 40,000 American soldiers and not to mention the millions who might someday perish in a theoretical World War III. To fully understand the debate, you have to back up to September 28, 1915, the date Ethel Greenglass was born. She was the first child born to Barney and Tessie Greenglass. Barney was an immigrant from Russia who had been married once before and had a son from that earlier marriage. Tessie was a homemaker, taking care of not just Ethel, but also the two sons who followed, Bernard and David. It would be David whose testimony would eventually condemn his sister to die. The family was by no means well off. They lived in a tenement apartment, which was a precursor to public housing popular in the early 20th century. 
If you lived in a tenement, your rooms were typically bare bones and your bathroom was shared. She was a timid little girl. She was very poor. This is Helen Yelin, one of Ethel's friends, in an interview posted by the Yiddish Book Center. She had a beautiful singing voice. She was also a communist. Now, if you're in my general age range, you grew up in an era in which communism was both a dirty word and also a repudiated justification for horrible, unjust treatment, re McCarthyism and blacklisting. I'd like to approach this with politics set aside as much as possible, largely because political discussions bore me and because I find a lot of it boring. I probably shouldn't be trusted to nail the nuances. But here are the basics. Communism advocates for a classless society in which property and wealth are owned and dispersed by the community rather than by individuals. Historically, to create this equal society that it's based on, communism has also involved creating an authoritarian state because if you're going to be equal, you've got to be willing to obey authority figures. As such, democracy and communism haven't seemed to jibe But really what's important to know now is what communism means and that it's at odds with capitalism, which is based on private ownership. In the first half of the 20th century, communism was looking pretty good to a lot of Americans, which makes sense if you think about it. Just back up to our episode about the Triangle Fire for more context. And this was an era of unbelievable technological growth in which the rich were getting richer off the labor of the poor, who, no matter how hard they worked, seemed to be running in a hamster wheel. Then you had the world wars and the Great Depression and the divide between haves and have-nots just seemed to be growing. In Russia, the country from which Ethel's father had immigrated, The people had grown frustrated with living in poverty while those in power bathed in excess, so they revolted. The idea was that the people were equal and therefore should have access to the same stuff equally. There predictably were people in America who thought, hey, that doesn't sound so bad. Why should someone born into poverty be condemned to stay there for life when there's so much that could be shared? This kind of thinking helped lead to labor rights organizations, and union shops. Eventually, a union came in to our place, to the cotton goods industry. It was called Local 65, a hotbed of communism. And and they unionized us. I I used to walk on the picket line saying, what do we say? We want a living wage. $15 is not a living wage. Not only that, but hours were capped too, which meant that the company Yelan worked for had to hire new workers, union workers specifically, to make production demands. One of the girls they hired was Ethel Rosenberg. That would have been around 1930, and it's how Yelin and Ethel became friends. Ethel's family, her Russian father in particular, paid attention to his old country's post-revolution reconstruction with interest. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or the USSR, had been born of the revolution's ashes in 1922. The U.S. at the time was anti-communist and in fear of still newish Russian president Joseph Stalin, but the country wasn't officially anti-Russia. In fact, if you dig through newspapers between 1915 and 1925, you'll find headlines referring warily to Stalin as a strongman, but also op-eds with lines like, not only is communism the form of life with which the Russian peasantry have become most familiar, but it is also thoroughly practical and ethical. 
Ethel was on board with this thinking. She used to take me to places where they're full of communists. And uh, we were all very idealistic. We were a little pink. Get it? Communism was red, but they were a little pink. Anyway, sparked by her involvement in labor disputes, Ethel joined the Young Communist League. That's where, in 1936, she met Julius Rosenberg, a wiry, bespectacled man nearly three years her junior. Like Ethel, Julius was a native New Yorker. The two got married in 1939 and had two sons born about four years apart. From the outside, they lived extraordinarily normal, borderline boring lives from a 60-minute special. Julius was an unsuccessful engineer. Ethel spent most of her time raising their two sons. Michael, born in 1943, was their oldest. It's a very traditional approach to marriage in the family. When they got married, very soon after that, she stopped working for a living. You know, I was born and then that was it. This is Michael speaking in a forum hosted by the International Spy Museum in 2015. She was a full-time mom. And Julius was her lead. You know, he was the breadwinner. He was the decision maker. But she agreed with his politics. There's no question about that. Michael and his younger brother, Robert, who went by Robbie, have spent much of their adult lives trying to first uncover and then understand their parents' case. And that begins with understanding their politics in the 1930s. They saw the Soviet Union as a model of a new society. They saw Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and imperial Japan as representing the worst of the capitalist world order. They wanted the United States to be on the right side of the war. In other words, they loved America. Their families had immigrated here for good reason. But they also didn't always trust the people in power. They didn't trust that the working class was getting a fair shake. And some things in their new homeland felt in flux. Like, they were hearing about America and Russia both testing out these crazy-ass bombs that could theoretically wipe out the planet. Now, to be clear, I am not excusing spying. Don't spy. It's a bad idea for more reasons than the possible legal penalties. But I always try to understand the why behind a crime. And the Rosenbergs' why isn't simply that they loved spying or that they wanted to take down America. They were looking for a way to better the world. Their youngest son, Robbie, as quoted here by Michael, explained it really well one time. My parents looked out their window. They saw unemployment, misery, people being thrown out of their homes because they couldn't pay the rent. And they saw communists organizing unions to fight for higher wages, organizing the unemployed to demand relief and jobs. They saw communist organizers responding to evictions by putting people's furniture back into their apartments when the marshals had left. They went on demonstrations, and when the cops attacked the marchers or the picketers, they read in the press, communist riot and the police restore order. Mm-hmm. Uh, sound familiar, people in the Occupy movement? In those days, they didn't have cell phones with cameras that could prove the press lied. The press got away with a lot of lies. So the communists knew the press lied about what they did in their shops and communities and assumed, therefore, the press was lying about the Soviet Union. Remember, too, that this is an era in which Americans are painfully aware of the fallibility of their leaders and institutions. Prohibition had come and gone and bred not only mobsters, but widespread corruption in law enforcement agencies nationwide. Nearly half of America's banks had failed in the Great Depression, and up to 25% of the country had been out of work. So that's the backdrop. 
Now, at first, Julius and Ethel were just regular American communists, meaning they supported the labor movement, they dreamed of an equal society, and they read communist newspapers like The Daily Worker. But then Julius got a new job at the U.S. Army Signal Corps from a documentary created by the Life Guide called The Cold War. Julius was a U.S. Army engineer working in a lab during the Second World War in 1940. But not just any lab, the engineering lab in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. Here, a lot of sensitive and critical technologies were being worked on by the Army's best engineers, including guided missile control and radar. Around the same time, Julius met first some Russian sympathizers and then some Russians. He managed to smuggle classified information to the Soviets via radio. He also recruited more agents into the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, or NKVD, or Stalin's Secret Police and Intelligence, whichever you prefer. He offered something else, something bigger. He said, you know, my brother-in-law might have some info you'd like. He's working for the army in New Mexico on this super secretive project. It was called the Manhattan Project. On June 3, 1945, Ethel Rosenberg's youngest brother heard a knock on his apartment door. When he opened it, he was greeted by a man he'd never seen before, a mid-30s guy with a square face and deep-set, sad eyes. Are you David Greenglass? The stranger asked. David said he was. The man replied, I have come from Julius. Despite the visit being a surprise, David still understood immediately what this was about. In the days prior to this door knock, he and his wife Ruth had staked out a specific meeting spot that Julius had designated. The plan had been to meet up with a woman that they had met before to swap information that David had gleaned from his top secret job in Los Alamos, New Mexico. David was an army sergeant. He was a machinist working at Los Alamos in New Mexico where the bomb was being fabricated. The official code name was Development of Substitute Materials, but that was a mouthful. Soon, it was designated the Manhattan Project instead, taking its name from the city where the early engineers had been based. The project, the goal of which was to create an atomic bomb, started in 1939 and was pretty modest at first. But as American leaders grew more and more concerned that Germany was developing a nuclear weapon, they threw more and more resources into the Manhattan Project. Eventually, the thing employed some 130,000 people and cost nearly $2 billion, and that's 1940s money. More than 30 sites in the U.S., the U.K., and Canada served as home for various research and production facilities. Julius Rosenberg had delivered a message to David Greenglass through David's wife, Ruth. And the message was pretty simple. I'm doing work to help our allies, the Russians, he conveyed. How would you feel about helping them too? Now, whether David jumped at the offer or reluctantly agreed is up for debate. But either way, he did sign on without Julius having to ask twice. Here's some talking to 60 Minutes. said we have to help our ally and... Uh, our ally, Russia. Russia was an ally at the time. And uh, that we have to help them with all the information we get. After signing on to help, David began asking questions around Los Alamos. Colleagues later remembered him being on par with a nosy toddler. What does this button do? And then what happens? And what's this called? 
The workers were supposed to pay attention for overly quizzical folks in their midst. It was a top-secret post, after all. But it didn't occur to anyone that David might be a spy. He just wasn't discreet enough, not deft enough, and frankly, not smart enough. So they rolled their eyes and answered his questions. By the time Harry Gold knocked on David's apartment door, David could sketch out a key component of an implosion trigger that the U.S. had designed for one of the two bombs ultimately dropped on Japan to end World War II. How useful this sketch was has been a matter of debate ever since. You could look at the sketch and say this is really a child's drawing of an atomic bomb. To me, it kind of looks like a drawing of a compact disc with a bit of topography. But what it did for the Russians, presumably, is persuade them that the bomb we were making was an implosion bomb that it was a bomb that was going to contract plutonium and make it blow up into a big bomb. Before David made the drawing, though, he had to be sure that Harry Gold had indeed come from Julius. To answer that question, Harry pulled out a jello box. Months earlier, Julius had been talking to David and his wife, Ruth, when one of them asked, hey, if someone ever approaches us as a supposed spy contact, how will we know they're legit? Julius grabbed a jello box, sliced its top flat in half, and gave one half to the couple. The other half, he said, would be given to their contact. The two pieces would fit together, and they'd know all was cool. I'm sure Jello was not a fan of this product placement. Harry Gold had the missing half, so David was reassured and made the sketch. According to David's later testimony, a few months after the Harry Gold meeting, He described an evening he and his wife Ruth spent at the Rosenberg's New York apartment in 1945. He brought sketches and handwritten notes about the atom bomb with him, and after dinner, Greenglass told the court they got down to business. Greenglass said they set up a typewriter on a folding bridge table in the living room and turned his handwritten notes into a neatly typed document for the Soviets. You'll note his wife Ruth was with him. I mean, Ruth was a small part of the operation, but a part nonetheless. After David agreed to help Julius smuggle info to the Russians, Ruth had been convinced to move from their New York home to New Mexico so she could act as a sort of go-between, if necessary, between David and any spy visitors. This night in the Rosenberg's apartment in New York was during one of David's leaves from the Los Alamos base. Now, Ethel might have played a role in the operation, too, but what that role was isn't as clear. In early explanations to the FBI, David and Ruth said Ethel was merely present. She maybe encouraged Ruth to pass along Julius's request for help, but that was really it. Now, in later retellings, her role morphed, according to Ruth and David's trial testimony in 1951. Both of them said it was Ethel who typed up the notes on that folding table in the living room seven years prior. When the green glasses told that ordinary, seemingly undramatic story about Ethel doing some typing, very few in this courtroom in Lower Manhattan missed its significance. It was virtually the only evidence the government had against Ethel Rosenberg. Prosecutors argued that Ethel typing those notes proved she was an active participant in the spying. To get why this was so important, you have to understand what the government's endgame was here and how the case had unfolded to begin with. I mean, it's naturally complicated, as spy stuff tends to be. 
I'm relying largely on contemporary news coverage, as well as a 2001 book called The Brother, written by Sam Roberts, who interviewed David Greenglass at length. But the unraveling goes something like this. The U.S. had a secret counterintelligence program called the Venona Project, through which they obtained a bunch of encrypted messages transmitted by Soviet intelligence agencies. And these messages should have been uncrackable, but the intelligence agencies got a little sloppy at some point. The messages relied on a one-time pad system, meaning that once a code was used, it was never to be reused again. Somehow, the company that manufactured these one-time pads managed to make some 35,000 pages of duplicate key numbers, meaning that the codes were used more than once. The duplication allowed for American codebreakers to decipher some of the messages, and that led them to a guy named Klaus Fuchs. Fuchs was a German theoretical physicist who drafted calculations that helped lead to the early models of the hydrogen bomb. He was also a Russian spy. He had fled Germany and was willing to do just about anything to make sure Germany, and Hitler specifically, didn't win the arms battle. The Venona Project uncovered him, but he wasn't arrested right away because the Americans were worried that if they arrested him based on their decryption of the Russian messages, the Russians would figure out that they were cracking some of their codes and clamp down. The U.S. did, however, alert British intelligence. Britain and Canada worked with America on the Manhattan Project, and the U.K.'s MI5 questioned him. Fuchs denied being a spy at first, but then, in January 1950, he confessed. Fuchs's statement led them to Harry Gold because Harry had been Fuchs's handler. When questioned, Harry mentioned having swung by a soldier's apartment in New Mexico back in 1945, and his info, matched with other details decrypted from the Russian intelligence messages, led them to David Greenglass. By the time David was approached, he was already aware that officials were closing in. He didn't know who Klaus Fuchs was, but Julius did. And Julius knew Harry Gold even better. So once the news came out that those two had been arrested as spies, Julius warned David that this thing was about to blow. He was working to try to get David, Ruth, and by then, the two green glass children out of the country. But David didn't want to go. Well, I didn't want to leave the United States to go to some hellhole like Russia, China, wherever the hell he wanted to send me, or or, uh, Czechoslovakia, whatever. He acted as though he was on board with fleeing, though. He and his family had passport photos taken, and he accepted Julius's getaway money, some $5,000 of it, which was huge at the time. But instead of leaving the country, he was eyeing a hideaway in the Catskills for him and his family which the 60 Minutes reporter noticed was a pretty dumb idea. Think about it now. Yeah. The FBI was looking for you because they thought they had you on atomic espionage. Yeah. You thought you could hide in the Catskills? Tell you I lost them. I'm telling you. Okay, for that day. But you were thinking of taking your wife and your kids there and hiding out. I know the Catskills quite well. The only part of this dumbass idea that seems remotely understandable is that Ruth was still recovering from some pretty serious burns she'd gotten in a household accident just a few weeks earlier, and the couple's youngest child, a daughter, was still an infant. International travel probably didn't seem the most viable plan. 
But it also seems that David just didn't think what he had done was all that big of a deal from 60 Minutes. Did you enjoy being a spy? Did you not like the idea? No, not particularly. No, not particularly. I was continually conscious of what's behind me. Well, I didn't enjoy it. I just did it because I said I would. Did you realize how dangerous it was for you? Yeah, I didn't really think why, because I didn't think the Russians were an enemy. Now, how he felt began to change the month after he supplied that implosion trigger sketch to Harry Gold. That's because on July 16, 1945, the U.S. tested its atomic bomb in New Mexico. It was devastatingly successful, creating a crater that measured nearly 90 yards wide. It also melted the desert sand into a radioactive substance called trinitite, and that stuff encircled the blast site in a 330-yard radius. The bomb David had been helping create was no longer theoretical. It was real, and it was terrifying. Come August 1945, the two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan, effectively ending World War II. But that didn't end Julius's request for more and more help. He even suggested to David that he and Ruth move to New Mexico full-time. David, it seems, had trouble saying no to his brother-in-law. He'd always respected and admired the guy. So he acquiesced a few times with helping out a bit more, hence the folding table typewriter event two months after the bomb testing. But after that, he was basically out. He was not moving to New Mexico. He was discharged from the army in 1946. And he moved on. No more spying. But when, in 1950, Fuchs led to Gold, who led to David, suddenly his half-assed actions from five years earlier came back to haunt him. Not only that, but hindsight had shown his actions weren't helping an ally after all. The Soviet Union was no friend of America. As the Venona Project showed, they'd had spies all over America trying to learn bomb-making secrets. In 1949, a year before the feds closed in on Fuchs, Gold, and David, Russia successfully tested its own nuclear bomb in Kazakhstan, making it the world's second nuclear weapon state. Then, just as the arrests were starting, the Korean War officially began. North Korea, with military support from China and the Soviet Union, invaded South Korea on June 25, 1950. This went down in history as the first military action of the Cold War. And to America, it wasn't just some foreign matter on another continent. It was a war pitting democracy against communism. The Red Scare in the U.S. was at a crescendo. Any affinity David felt toward Russia disappeared. So he offered to cooperate with the feds on one condition. That's what I told the FBI. I said, if you indict my wife, you can forget it. I'll never say a word about anybody. The FBI agreed. Ruth wasn't charged. But for David to cut a deal, he had to offer up someone else. So he offered up Julius. Michael Rosenberg again. Now, my father, Julius Rosenberg, was arrested in July of 1950, a few weeks after the Korean War began. The trial was an international sensation. One of the greatest peacetime spy dramas in the nation's history reaches its climax. It turned out that Julius had recruited more spies than just his brother-in-law. He'd also recruited a college buddy named Morton Sobel, an electrical engineer. 
Reporters were fascinated by the apparent web of low-level intrigue Julius had managed to weave. Morton Sobel, the principal in America's first atomic spy trial, leaves New York's federal court. An electronics expert, he's accused with Julius Rosenberg, electrical engineer, of conspiring to give Russia vital secrets of the atom bomb. Rosenberg's wife is also accused of complicity in the plot against the country's security. The feds weren't much interested in Ethel as maybe having been a spy. They never thought she'd played some crucial role with her husband. But they wanted Julius to flip on people higher up the food chain. In a word, they wanted leverage. David and Ruth didn't implicate her much at first. But then they said she typed up those notes and everything changed. She was arrested alongside her husband. Both faced the death penalty if convicted of either espionage or conspiracy to commit espionage. Years later, David told 60 Minutes that Ethel hadn't, in fact, typed anything that he saw. And to this day, I can't even remember that the typing took place, see? But it, somebody typed it. I'm not sure who it was. And I, I don't even think it was done while we were there. But what you do remember is that you did not have a memory at the time of Ethel typing up those notes. I had no memory of that at all. None whatsoever. His reason for the lie, he said, was that he'd been forced to by Assistant Prosecutor Roy Cohn, who's best known in history as anti-communist Senator Joseph McCarthy's right-hand man. It never occurred to David that embellishing this one detail would not only lead to his sister's conviction, but also her death. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were convicted on March 29, 1951. A week later, federal judge Irving Kaufman sentenced them to death. For his book, The Brother, author Sam Roberts interviewed former Secretary of State Bill Rogers about the trial. I said, it didn't work out pretty much the way you wanted it to. You indicted the Rosenbergs, you convicted them, you executed them. And he said, no, that's not really what we wanted. What we wanted to do was indict them and use the leverage of indicting Ethel to get Julius to talk, to get Julius to name names. We knew the other names because of the Bonona tapes, but we were hiding that. We didn't want to admit to the Soviets that we knew those names, so we wanted to bring it out in another way. We wanted to get Ethel to talk. We indicted her in a capital offense to get her to talk. So I said, well, what went wrong? And Rogers paused for a moment and he said, she called our bluff. Julius and Ethel never named names. They never even seemed to entertain the idea. After they were arrested in 1950, their kids, Robbie and Michael, then ages three and seven, were shuttled around to various family members, some of whom wanted nothing to do with the kids of communist spies. They bounced in and out of orphanages. It seems the government was sure that Ethel's maternal instincts would back her into a corner, and maybe that's what should have happened. But it didn't. Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, on 60 Minutes Again. Up until the last minute, the authorities were willing to commute the death sentences if the Rosenbergs cooperated, named names, but they refused. Why do you think Julius and Ethel maintained their silence to the end? One word, stupidity. So you hold Ethel responsible for her own death? Yeah. Public sentiment was divided. 
Some people saw the Rosenbergs as traitors, absolutely deserving of death. But others protested, saying that the fear of communism was getting insane. Besides, the supporters said, we weren't at war with Russia. No one in U.S. history had ever been executed for treason in a time of peace. The Rosenbergs were the first. On June 19, 1953, just days after the couple's 14th wedding anniversary, which, by the way, was the original death date set before it got delayed, they were led separately in succession to the electric chair at Sing Sing. Julius went first. President Dwight Eisenhower had been asked to intervene, but he directly credited the Rosenbergs with the Soviets' eventual development of a working bomb. He said, quote, By immeasurably increasing the chances of atomic war, the Rosenbergs may have condemned to death tens of millions of innocent people all over the world. The execution of two human beings is a grave matter, but even graver is the thought of millions of dead whose death may be directly attributable to what these spies have done, end quote. Supporters made one final last-minute effort to delay the execution by saying it was religiously insensitive to kill the couple at the typical execution hour, June 19th, because of the Jewish Sabbath, which was to begin just before the sunset. Even the Rosenberg children, by then ages 10 and 6, made tearful pleas begging for just one more day with their parents. The Rosenbergs wait all day for word of their fate. It's now more than two years since they were first sentenced to die for organizing atomic espionage for Russia. Officials did agree that a Sabbath execution would seem insensitive, but instead of delaying the deaths, they moved them up by a few hours. They will be executed tonight. Probably within the next half hour, the first husband and wife to die in the electric chair. Reporter Bob Considine, who watched both of the executions, said... They died differently, gave off different sounds, different grotesque manners. Uh, He died quickly, never said a word. She died a lot harder. Julius was 35. Ethel was 37. David Greenglass was sentenced to 10 years in prison for his role. Once he got out, he changed his name and lived with his wife and two children in relative anonymity. After author Sam Roberts tracked him down for his book, Greenglass gave just the one interview to 60 Minutes on the condition that they distort his voice and refrain from revealing his assumed name or showing his face. In that interview, Greenglass was asked, Have you been haunted by it? Some degree, yeah. But I, every time I'm haunted by it or say something, my wife says, look, we're still alive. If we have our kids, everything's okay, you know, so. He never saw his two nephews again. For a time, the boys lived with Ethel's mom, Tessie, but that was short-lived. People were scared to death to talk to anyone connected with communism at the time. Michael told this story about that period. I was eight years old living with my grandmother, and, uh... I knew that there was a newspaper called the National Guardian that was on my parents' side. And I made friends on the block, and I told a kid named Phil and his parents that, you know, who I was. My name was Michael Rosenberg. And uh, I said, you know, they're innocent, and if you read these newspapers, you'll find out they were very nice to me. So I said, this is great. You know, I can help my parents. So the next kid I tried was a guy named Lawrence. And I was watching TV at Lawrence's house, and I... 
I said my name, and she said, are you Julius? I interrupted, I said, yes. And if you read the national, she cut me off. I don't want to hear about this. And then as we're sitting there watching TV, I hear these strange conversations going on. The older brother is saying, look, Lawrence, are you an American? And as soon as the clock turned to six, it was 10 minutes fast, the TV show's going on. TV show's over, time for you to go. And as I leave, she's saying to Lawrence, that's the last of your communist friend. Now, this woman might have been very nice to her children. She was terrified that a nine-year-old would contaminate her son. That's the 1950s to me, mm -hmm. in a nutshell. Family members treated the boys like radioactive fallout. Eventually, they were adopted by two strangers, Abel and Anne Mirpol. The two were Russian Jewish immigrants and communist sympathizers. Abel was also a composer who's best known for writing the anti-lynching poem Bitter Fruit, which he eventually turned into the haunting song Strange Fruit. Abel and Anne had tried for years to have biological children. In fact, Abel's pen name was Lewis Allen in honor of his two stillborn sons. He and his wife were excellent parents to Michael and Robbie, who took their surnames and lived largely normal lives despite the trauma of their early years. David Greenglass said he never felt guilty about what happened to them. You haven't seen the Rosenberg children since the trial. Mm -mm. What would you say to them if they were here today? I would say I'm sorry that your parents are dead. Would you also say, I'm sorry for the role I played? No, I can't say that. That's not true. I had no idea they're going to give them the death sentence. And you're sitting here today, a man with a clean conscience. Absolutely. I sleep very well. The boys grew up certain their parents were innocent. They thought this because just before the parents were executed, Michael asked, are you guilty? Both Ethel and Julia said, of course not. As adults, Michael and Robbie set out to clear their parents' names. They filed Freedom of Information Act requests and poured through thousands of pages of documents. What they learned wasn't what they expected. This is Robbie. The evidence is overwhelming that my father was involved in espionage during the 1940s, that he and a group of young men took military industrial information and material from the United States during World War II and gave it to the Soviet Union in order to help them defeat the Nazis. So my father was guilty, but not of atomic espionage, of military industrial espionage. But Robbie, who grew up to be a lawyer, said the evidence pointed to his mother being nothing more than Julius's wife. Can I prove that she's totally and completely innocent of not being involved in a secret conspiracy or being involved in a secret conspiracy? I can't prove that. But I can show that the evidence presented against her at trial was presented was oral testimony given by two witnesses, both of whom perjured themselves. And, and that... I can prove that, and therefore that her conviction was based upon false evidence and should not stand. Michael and Robbie tried to have their mother pardoned by President Barack Obama and got some 60,000 signatures on a petition for her exoneration, but nothing ever came of their efforts. In the eyes of the law, she remains a traitor.
To research this case, I read Sam Roberts' The Brother, The Untold Story of the Rosenberg Case, read news stories from the time, watched that 60 Minutes episode featuring David Greenglass, and learned more about communism than I ever did in social studies class. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 